Hello, this is Jesse Single, the host of Single Minded Conversations. This is the companion podcast to my newsletter, Single Minded, which you can find at jessesingle.substack.com. For today's episode, I spoke with Katie Gordon. Uh, until recently, Katie was a professor of psychology at North Dakota State University. She's now in private practice, and she has a research background in eating disorders and suicide. She also co-hosts a podcast, Jedi Council, as in counselor, with Brandon Saxton, a graduate student working towards his PhD in clinical psychology. Their podcast explores mental health through the lens of fictional characters, but it also includes traditional interviews with some interesting people. I highly recommend it. Uh, I think I just met Katie online, the way I meet a lot of academic and journalistic types on Twitter probably, Uh, but we got together a couple times when she was in New York. One time we went to a beer hall and I think I ate way too much of the giant pretzel we were sharing, so I'm sorry about that, Katie. Uh, I was excited to talk to her because suicide is one of those areas where there's just a lot of misinformation around and there's a lot of stigma. People have trouble talking about it openly. I worked not that long, maybe eight or nine months for a suicide hotline in Boston when I lived in Cambridge. And the main thing they trained us to do was just be able to talk about this stuff openly because it really doesn't come naturally because it's such a difficult subject. So I was excited to talk to Katie about that about and to do some myth-busting on the subject. And as a result, the first part of the interview is pretty heavy. I mean, suicide is the subject. So there's a lot of talk about the complicated and rather incomplete research literature surrounding the subject. After we go over that stuff, the conversation does open up a little bit. We talk about social media, campus culture war stuff, and, and some other issues. What I really appreciate about Katie is that because you know she's been teaching and, and researching in North Dakota, she has a very different view from the terrible, loathsome bubble dwellers such as myself. I, you'll see in some of the questions I asked and the way she answered them, the stuff that, that people like me sometimes become concerned about or fixated on, it's not what a lot of professors and just normal people are seeing out in the rest of the country. So I, I think it's worth trying to find some sort of balance where, you know, us journalists recognize that, that we might have a limited view. And, and one way to get a broader view is to talk to people like Katie. So again, I was uh, glad I was able to do so. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. You should definitely follow Katie on Twitter. She's at Dr. Catherine Gordon. Or if you just Google Katie Gordon Twitter, her account will come up. Uh, and definitely check out Jedi Council. I'll include links to everything in the show notes. And just to reiterate what I said last time in the first episode, this is very much sort of an experiment and a work in progress. So if anything's working or not working, or you just want me to replace my voice with like some sort of sexy female robot, uh, shoot me an email, singleminded at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, I appreciate any and all feedback. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah, I, I kind of want to figure out a better long-term solution. Or I could just do a whole podcast centered around my audio difficulties. <laughs> I think there would be a market for that. So in the course of sort of brainstorming for this podcast, uh, I asked you what are the top things you think people should know about suicide. And the very first one you listed was that it's a combination of factors. And you said that it's not just inaccurate, but actually could be harmful to view suicide as a result of sort of one big thing and one big thing alone in, in most cases. That that seemed particularly important to me. So could you just explain that a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. There are three things that come to mind when I was thinking about this particular one. One is that I think that 
understanding that it's a combination of factors actually facilitates compassion towards people who have died by suicide because it humanizes people in their complexity. If you think it's just one thing that causes suicide, some people might say, well, you know, I was unemployed and I never wanted to kill myself, so they should get over it. Whereas if you have awareness that there's kind of a combination of vulnerabilities occurring, that might make people less quick to, or um, I guess more hesitant to judge. They might be more reluctant, and I think that would be helpful. The second thing is that I, I think it actually helps with better recognition if you understand that suicide happens for a number of different reasons and that there are diverse pathways rather than just one thing you can always pinpoint that can help you recognize suicidality in yourself and others. I think often media coverage is on celebrities, which makes sense. And so often there's kind of a story of a wealthier, successful person who has a mental illness and the suicide is kind of attributed to the factor of the mental illness. Or there are teenagers who are bullied and it's kind of attributed to the bullying. But if you understand that there are other factors that go into that, I think that can help you recognize it, which ultimately leads to the third thing, which is being effective with preventing suicide. So, for example, if you know a person has a family history of suicide, that they've survived a sexual assault, and they have a gun that they're not safely storing, all three of those things increase suicide risk. And if you think that suicide is caused by just one thing, you might not, like, for example, if you just, you think it's related to sexual assault or family history, then you might not know how to intervene. But if you understand it's a combination of factors, you can kind of look at the situation and say, you know, we can't do anything about family history. We should, of course, strive to prevent future sexual assault. But once it's happened, we can't undo it. But if we know that they have access to firearms that aren't stored safely, and we know it's a combination that causes death by suicide, that means that we can affect one of those factors by having them store that firearm safely and per perhaps prevent the suicide that way. Yeah. And it's one of these subjects that I haven't dipped into a ton in my own reporting, but whenever I do, I'm struck by the extent to which suicide in many cases is a lot more of an impulsive act than people recognize, right? You know, this, so this is actually an area of controversy where some people view it that way. Um, one way that I tend to view it is that while people, the act isn't impulsive in the moment in a way um, that it's often been planned and things like that, there is a period of acute risk where if you can intervene and the person gets through that moment, they often won't attempt again. That's not always true. And so that's why those crisis interventions can be helpful. So you do see some impulsive type things, but it is often there's some result of, it's a result of planning over time. And there might be kind of a lower level risk and then something bumps it up a notch that might look like impulsivity. Gotcha. Okay. So it, the, it's less that the entire thing is impulsive and it's more that there are sort of moments or spans of time of maximal risk where if you really can just take away or make the means of, of someone committing suicide less accessible, uh, you could be saving their life. Yes, exactly. What, so along those lines, what are, what are the most, other than having a readily accessible means of, of doing it, what are the most acute warning signs everyone should be aware of? So there was a really good article by Chu et al. in 2015 that highlights different suicide risk factors. And the five that they found in reviewing the literature are, one, planning for suicide. So kind of like we were just talking about, if 
if someone is thinking about suicide and it advances to the point where they're thinking about specific methods or thinking about specific days, times, and things like that, that's of concern because that, that shows there's more resolve and, and more firm plans involved. Another one is social withdrawal. Uh, social isolation and withdrawing from people around you is something that's a robust finding in the literature as an acute warning sign for suicide. There's also agitation. So often people will describe this as kind of feeling like they want to crawl out of their skin or they're very restless, they can't sit still. And severe weight loss. There's been some research showing that you see a significant weight loss leading up to um, individuals dying by suicide. And then the last one is sleep disturbance. So if you see this increase in insomnia and nightmares, that can also be an acute warning sign for suicide. I was, um, I did a little bit of time working as a suicide hotline volunteer at Samaritans in Boston. I remember being struck by, they were very adamant that it's important to ask people in a straightforward way, are you suicidal? Uh, and, and there's a tendency to sort of beat around the bush. It's just one of those areas where it just really is about sort of reducing stigma and, and teaching people to talk about it more openly? Yes, that, that's absolutely right. There's convincing research that asking people about suicide does not put the idea in their head. So I think sometimes people are afraid, oh, they weren't thinking about it. And if I ask them about it, they'll start. There's, there's not evidence that that happens. Uh, and if you're indirect about suicide, you could unintentionally send the message to the person that you don't feel comfortable with them really opening up to you or that suicide is something unspeakable. And that can decrease the chance that they'll actually tell you what's going on in their mind. So yes, absolutely. Questioning and talking about it directly sends the right message that this is something you can talk about openly. When we were brainstorming for this, you mentioned that one of the sort of myths you wanted to knock down was that suicide is not selfish. And and when I saw that, I sort of... Um, arch my eyebrows a little bit because I, I feel like in maybe I'm giving us too much credit, but I feel like in sort of bubbly places like Boston and New York and DC where I'm from, the idea that suicide is selfish has, has mostly been dispelled. Is that one of those things where in other parts of the country it still lingers? I mean, I feel like you wouldn't have mentioned that if it wasn't something you saw a lot. The thing that I, the times I tend to see it is if there's a news story. So for example, with Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, there were some people, first of all, I agree with you. I think the, I think that has decreased. I think that it, people are less likely to view it that way, which is important. But when I think when people die by suicide and they had a child, often that's where I'll see people say that was selfish to do that to their child, not understanding that the person who killed themselves thinks that they were doing their child a favor usually, that the child is better off without them. Gotcha. Yeah, the Bourdain one, that was the first time I'd really been hit hard by the death of a celebrity. And I think like a lot of people, it's just, he was this sort of the platonic ideal of someone who was alive and who loved life and who could make himself comfortable everywhere. And, you know, to see someone like that commit suicide, I, I think it does hit you in a different way. I would imagine that reverberated in, in sort of your community a little bit uh, among people who research suicide. Definitely. Definitely. I think that he was someone that I think in a lot of ways people wanted to view as a hopeful story, that he was open about the struggles that he experienced, that he contributed in a number of ways to a lot of people, and 
than to find out that someone who in a lot of ways has a lot of resources and access would be in such a place that he would kill himself. It's really sad. And I think that within the suicide prevention community, we wanted to be sensitive to a couple things. One, his fans being upset just by the stressor of losing him, but also people thinking, you know, if he can't make it, then how can I, if he has access to so many resources? And so I think, I think it's really hard. And it also just speaks to how anyone can be affected. Where do you weigh in on the idea of young people today being hit a lot harder by suicide and by problems like depression in the past? Because my sense is if you look at the graphs, there's there seems to be a pretty clear thing going on, but there's some controversy over the methodology and what's being measured and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that those those uh, those trends are alarming, and I think that my answer is dissatisfying in that I don't I don't think we really know because unfortunately it takes a while to really understand, and because there is such a multitude of factors that can affect these things. I think I can understand why people want to speculate and identify what the issues are, but I really think it's an open question, and fortunately a lot of scientists are paying attention to it, and I hope we, we understand it better so that we can intervene more effectively. This is a podcast, though. You're supposed to just spot out, spout <laughs> off without knowing exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I'll try to do better. Okay, so I, I take it along those same lines. If If we're not sure what's going on in general, the stuff about social media i'm always torn on because on the one hand i've lived through multiple waves of sort of technophobia and youth culture phobia i do think moving from a world where no one is ever on facebook to a world where some vulnerable young people are spending 12 or 16 hours a day on it could have some impact but i'm guessing if we don't know the overall story we can't say anything for sure about that either well this is my my thought, and I have tried to keep up with this research, is I, I think it's it's what you're saying, which is that for some people that are vulnerable, it is going to make things worse. It kind of depends what they're doing on social media. I could imagine it improving mental health and increasing social connections for a lot of people. But if they're on social media and it's kind of like they're avoiding other types of important things in their life or they're getting bullied on social media, and that's why I think it's really important to pay attention to individual differences when we're looking at try how to help people and understanding the broad picture. My guess is that it's just going to be different factors at play. It seems unlikely based on the research that I've said that that explains the trends that we're seeing completely or maybe even a large proportion of it. But that doesn't mean that there aren't individuals that are negatively affected by it. It seems like there is evidence of that. And so that's why I think it's really important for people to notice their own moods or if they're if we're talking about youth that their parents monitor and kind of pay attention to how they're doing and and just see what is in particular for that person leading to better mental health or worsening their mental health so that they can help that individual person. How does um contagion work? Is it is it really as simple as a vulnerable person will see someone else committed suicide in this way that sort of almost valorizes or glorifies it and just sort of say, I want to end my life in that way. This has convinced me or is it more complicated than that? I think like every, my answer to every question is it's complicated, but <laughs> Damn it. I, which is not very satisfying, but um, I think, so what I've read, I've, I've read different 
takes on contagion, and it does seem like the the research is actually pretty mixed, but there's a recent study that came out that tried to do more interviews and understand what was going on, and at least some of the mechanisms suggest that there, for some people that are vulnerable, there are a couple things that can happen. So there are um, so-called clusters of suicide where you'll see in a location within a certain span of time, multiple suicides occur. And sometimes they're part of the same social group. So if you have people that are already vulnerable and suicidal and then they lose someone to suicide, some of it can be that the grief worsens whatever was going on with them. Another part of it, though, could be that that their capacity for killing themselves is actually could possibly be increased. So we have a very strong, innate drive to survive, and that protects a lot of people from dying by suicide, not enough, but many people. And I think that if you see that someone you know has killed themselves, you might think about, well, if they can do that, then maybe I can do that too. And it might reduce some of the fear that is usually protective. So I think there are a couple of different ways that that could occur. Gotcha. Do you, sort of along those same lines, um, I'm torn on this because I'm always worried I'm going to sort of wander into unscientific territory. But I I do see these corners of Twitter and Tumblr. I'm I'm sort of a connoisseur of dysfunctional internet subculture, which (laughs) can explain myriad personality and personal problems I have. But uh, (laughs) would you like to focus on that instead? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The second half of this should just be. Okay, so my relationship with my mom is a little bit. uh, (laughs) No, so there are these communities where it seems like people do constantly talk about suicide or self-harm in this way that I don't know what the individuals who talk about this stuff are going through. It just, it, it worries me that like a 14 or 15 year old would stumble into these communities and it, these ideas are just so normalized and so prevalent and feels like they could sort of be reinforcing trauma. Is that just like made up culture war panic or could there be anything to that? Yeah, I, I think there is something to that. So I think kind of like, we were saying before, it's a good thing that people can talk more openly about their experiences and that can actually lead people to seeking help and things like that. But also some of of what you had talked about, it, the idea that people think like suicide is a common reaction or just an everyday reaction to stressors, I could see that being harmful. I'm speculating a little bit here because I'm worried that that could make someone think that if they start thinking about suicide, that's just typical and they they don't really need to do anything about it or um, that, you know, that's just how things go. And so um, thinking about suicide as a way to cope with pain is and I'm oversimplifying here. I could see that, especially for vulnerable people, that that could be negative. And so I think these communities are good. And it's not the kind of thing where, you know, ideally, of course, as a therapist, I would love if it was like, people talk about this and immediately resources appear and they're told to be hopeful and connect with a therapist. But I know that that's not how these things work. And so yeah, I do worry about that, that for example, if someone thinks, hey, the world is already pretty a bad place, because they're feeling depressed, And then they start thinking, well, and everyone just wants to kill themselves. I can imagine that making their worldview even more negative. And so, yeah, I'd be concerned about that. Yeah, there was, um, again, I feel like any any guest of mine risks getting dragged into online dysfunction territory. (laughs) You're wasting your expertise. But there, there are these weird online social dynamics where 
two or three days ago, there was this viral tweet from a woman saying, as a woman, I'm terrified to even leave my house. The world mm-hmm. is so scary for women. And women, horrible things happen to women every day. I don't think anyone would deny that. But just this idea of posting something like that, where I would imagine if one of your patients said to you, I'm afraid to even leave the house, that would be clinically worrisome because that that's sort of above and beyond the actual threat to anyone in the actual country we live in. And it's just weird to watch that stuff sort of, it gets people a lot of attention and it spreads far and wide and people sort of get rewarded for these claims that I think from maybe like a cognitive behavioral therapy standpoint just wouldn't, aren't that healthy. Does does that make sense? Yeah, I I totally, I understand what you're saying. And I I think that that you're right. So cognitive behavioral therapy, I think, can be helpful. The goal is to get to accuracy of the thoughts. I think when it's something like if someone said that in a clinical setting, it can be really different than if someone's saying it on social media, of course. So if someone said, I'm scared to leave the house, I'd want to assess, are, do they happen to be in a very dangerous neighborhood? Or did they have a trauma that affected them? Like what's really going on? And then if you find that oh, the risk is exaggerated for whatever the reason is. Maybe they're struggling with an anxiety disorder or they had a trauma or they happen to be in a really dangerous neighborhood. Then I would individually approach it based on that. But obviously that's not the context that's on social media. (laughs) So yeah, I could see why that would be strange. And were there a lot of people that that resonated with that or thought that was their experience too? Yeah, there was just, it seemed like there was, And again, as you're saying with that useful context, there are situations where someone might be afraid to leave the house, but this was sort of presented and held up as a a reasonable response to, you know, living in America in 2019. And yeah, it, it, right. So I guess what you're saying is context is everything, but um, I mean, not, not to hone in on that, but are, are you sympathetic to sort of these ideas of it's sort of the John Haidt, Greg Lukianoff idea that, uh, you know, on college campuses and elsewhere, there are ways where you could sort of sap kids of resilience by almost training them or encouraging them to overreact to everyday aspects of diversity. And I've seen versions of that argument that I sort of attribute to right-wing culture warring. I've also seen versions of it that that resonate a little bit for me, just because I remember, like, when I was 20, how little perspective I had. Um, what do you think of all that whole thing? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. So I think that I, I think it's hard to apply cognitive behavioral therapy, which was kind of developed specifically for people suffering with depression and anxiety initially, and then for a bunch of other things to broader, more complicated situations, just the way that it's delivered. But the general idea that college students are, because of how they're treated on college campuses, are becoming less resilient, I try to keep up with some of the news stories on that. And I think like most things, there are examples of this and there are instances of this, but I'm I'm personally doubtful that it's a very widespread thing. I think that largely because students have a lot of different factors and circumstances shaping their lives. And so they come with their, you know, their own personalities, how they grew up, their peers, their jobs, the larger political climate. And it's hard for me to believe that they're kind of like fully blank slate or something when it goes to like learning resilience or even close to that on college campuses. Uh, And secondly, I just think that professors work really hard to create classroom and campus environments that that are rigorous and challenging while balancing that with being compassionate and thoughtful. So again, I think it could happen in some circumstances, but I'm 
I'm skeptical that it's a, a real widespread issue that's affecting resilience, even just because I think about, you know, college obviously can impact people's lives in a lot of ways, but they also have so many other things informing their lives and their resilience. Yeah. And, and one of the two times you and I uh, met up in New York, we were talking about how a huge amount of the coverage of college campuses is focused on certain mostly liberal arts, sort of elite campuses with very, like the kinds of campuses New York Times editors send their kids to, Wesleyan, mm -hmm. Harvard, Yale. And you were telling me, um, you know, where you are in North Dakota, it's just a completely different universe that gets mostly ignored by mainstream media, right? Yeah, I think so. And so I think that, for example, in talking to some people, I think there might be some elements of what you see in orientation or something like that, that people have brought up in news media um, along these lines. But at least the students, when I was working at that university, it seemed like I don't know how much a lot of them took it to heart. Surely there were some, but I think most of them just like they continued on based on what they came with, what they learned and what their peers are. So I didn't see it as like undermining their resilience or something like that. So I guess, I mean, maybe the the counterpoint, um, I, I wrote a little bit uh, about microaggression trainings. I wrote up a really good study by Scott Lilienfeld on them or article, I should say. I guess the counterpoint to being too concerned about them is like, this is a giant country where the average college student or the median one probably looks a little bit like a uh, community college commuter than a kid at Wesleyan or Yale getting involved in protests. So even if these microaggression trainings aren't ideal, uh, and even if they're somewhat widespread, it's just one tiny aspect of the average college student's life that is unlikely to impact them in the way some journalists might be suggesting. Would that? Do you think that's fair? Yeah, that, that's how I think about it. And, you know, just as you were saying, and I do think not that there are no instances of this or that we shouldn't be concerned. I also think I am a big fan of Scott Lilienfeld's work. And I think that is important to use science to evaluate whether programs are achieving the objectives that they're trying to. And I think, but in all in all, stepping back, I would just be surprised if it's a, a huge widespread problem because of what you just said, that there are just a lot of other factors affecting college students. Right. So if you could, if you uh, hypothetically were on a podcast with a journalist who writes about this stuff and <laughs> you thought that people like me sometimes spend too much attention um, you know, to just write too much about things like microaggression, what's some aspect of campus life in the same general vein that you think we neglect and don't pay enough attention to? Well, I think that the... I think the common thing that people bring up is just some of the struggles with economic uncertainty or struggles with health insurance coverage and some of the things that a lot of very resilient students are doing to kind of get their way through college. And there is some coverage of that for sure. I just think it shows the wide range of students that there are a lot that are coming in with having been through a lot of adversities, including people who struggled with mental health problems who wouldn't have been able to go to college before because they now have better access to medication and treatment that helps them to be a little bit more stabilized. And so I think that just painting a broader picture, I mean, it is important to cover a wide variety of aspects, but I think that's part of it too, that a lot of students are doing their best. They're managing a lot. A lot of my students were working almost full-time jobs while being students and navigating that. And so 
it didn't tend to fit with some of the narratives that the media did, which makes sense. I mean, my university was a state university and not some of the ones they were covering. Yeah, that's what worries me a little bit is that, again, it's just a bubble thing where when you think about how the population of college students has changed and it's gotten more diverse and people from different backgrounds and the whole the whole concept of higher education has got democratized, um, that's taking place in the context of a country with severe economic inequality and a really full of holes uh, mental health system. It seems like there's probably a lot of stories there that are less salient to sort of New York and DC editors and and that fit a little bit less neatly into culture war story what well, culture war stories that we all think do well online and are therefore drawn to. Yeah, I I I think I think that's true and there has, you know, to be fair there has been some balance and some coverage, but I think there is something that draws our attention about a story that seems kind of outrageous or over the top or something like that versus maybe it's it's not as eye-catching when someone's talking about yeah you know I'm a single parent and I went back to school and I'm also working all of this time and you know that story might not draw as much attention as this group of students responded this way to the speaker or something like that. Yeah um, I was actually at an event last night and uh, pertaining to sort of campus protest stuff I do think the the blowups when they occur are pretty damaging. Like I think they're damaging to progressivism because they just give the right wing a lot of fodder. I think Milo Yiannopoulos, in my view, benefited from people sort of rioting and and violence. Not that that's the norm, but I mean, you're a clinical psychologist. What what is the approach for eighteen and nineteen and twenty year olds who are for the first time thrust into these situations of sort of heated political disagreement and they might not have much experience talking this stuff through and they're a lot of them are probably upset for perfectly legitimate reasons i mean you think of like a undocumented kid i can't imagine what it would be like to be an undocumented kid in 2019 with this president but it does seem to me at the end of the day you need to learn to grow up to be a citizen who lives in a country where people disagree and where a lot of people hold beliefs you hate what are some general ways administrators and clinicians themselves can can help sort of nudge kids gently in that direction well something that that i thought this and, and i something that i observed on my campus when there was a speaker who came on and there again my my campus didn't have at least not that i'm aware of these anything that caught national headlines in response to a speaker but there was someone who was on campus who was talking about I, I don't want to get it wrong, but I believe was saying was sending messages about gay people being sinful. And there were some students in the audience. And the way that they handled it was they purposely went to kind of support their peers and to also push back on some of it. And then afterwards, they formed a committee where faculty and students could kind of communicate about speakers and make decisions about like educational value. And I thought that was a really great way to handle it. So the kind of idea and not everyone can do this. It kind of depends where you're at. But if you can to engage and try to figure out a way to have dialogue with people, not with the speaker, but with the other people in your community and the best way to navigate it, it's not, and it's not always that there, I don't think there's one size fits all. Like um, I spoke with a few of the students who were involved with organizing at University of Michigan when Richard Spencer was going to be there. And they had a very thorough, very clearly organized way that they were going about things. It was very thoughtful. And Richard Spencer, I think most people would agree with, could be harmful. I think it's harder when it's someone who's not 
I guess, let fewer people would designate as clearly racist or something like that. And so I don't think it's easy, but I think actually a lot of students do rise up to uh, talking to other community organizers and trying to understand, like, how do I best navigate that? So that's kind of like the the broader levels that I think students are doing a lot of great stuff. If someone came in to me to talk to me about it, I mean, usually what I try to understand is like, what is what is the harm or the threat that they're trying to understand, you know, and I want to validate what that is and then try to come up with a way for them to cope with it in a way that is meaningful and healthy for them. And that might be taking direct action or that might mean choosing to find other support networks. It kind of, it really depends on the individual situation. So what do you do when, have you had the situation in your office, um, well, it sounds like, okay, your campus was not as much of a hotbed as of activism. So either hypothetically or from your own experience, what do you do if a kid really does feel a sense of visceral threat at not Richard Spencer, but sort of pro-Trump people or conservative people? How do you, how do you help them work through that and come to a place? Because we're, we're never going to have a country without conservatives. So how do you help them come to a place where they can sort of effectively channel those feelings? Uh, so one thing that I did see when I was working with college students in the counseling center, and then also somewhat talking to students in, in class, is that often they would come from families that were fairly conservative, and often they were still conservative, but they disagreed with family members about specific things. For example, um, that that like going back to people believing that being gay is a sin or supporting same-sex marriage. And so they might have, sometimes they would have thought a certain way growing up and then they go to college, they meet more people and they change their mind and they would talk about going going back home and, and being with their family and how do they cope with that. The students that I think where you actually could see there being harm were if there was threats that they couldn't come back home. So if they were gay and they were going to be kicked out of the house or something like that, or there was some kind of criticism, if it was more, and in that case, it's kind of a a different approach. But if the approach is that it means disagreement, so they're going back for Thanksgiving and they now have somewhat different political opinions. You know, we talk about balancing, how do you assert yourself and your opinions and um, what you value in a way that's comfortable for you. When do you choose to make it a conversation versus not? You know, can you judge whether it's productive enough? You know, kind of keeping track of of their mental health. And there's just an enormous variability on that where some people aren't that bothered by arguments or if someone disagrees with them, they might feel even better arguing. Whereas other people, it's really aversive for them to have conflict. And so the goal is to find that balance where they're engaging with people that they care about. Um, if it's something more like, you know, in that case, the obvious hook is that it's their family members. But I think it could generalize to other things too. If they have roommates who have different opinions or the teacher said something that they don't agree with, that, you know, they think about that idea and think about what it means to them and what specifically it is that's bothering them and, and how can that best be addressed. But all of this is done, I think, in a way in therapy that's hard to do in a like a broad public way, which is you are looking for the kernel of truth that you can validate and where their feelings are and then collaboratively planning from there. And it's hard to do that in like a widespread way, you know? Right. So it sounds like you do think there's, um, 
it's a little bit too tidy, this idea that you can take cognitive behavioral ideas and, and apply them in a zoomed out general way. It just has to be a little bit more individualized than that. I think so. So one thing that, for example, I'd be concerned about is that in, in the history of mental health, there is a history of not paying enough attention to marginalized groups and the things that they've experienced, including not properly diagnosing people. So maybe diagnosing paranoia in someone who is black and reporting things that are likely to have actually happened to them. But it's you know, the therapist isn't thinking about that. So they say, oh, I'm followed around in a store or I think the police are pulling me over more or something like that. And if you just jump into, you know, skeptically, what's the evidence for and against that rather than saying, well, hey, maybe this really happened. Let's find out what some of the information is about it. Then I worry going too much in that direction that it can seem like everything is like you're invalidating things that may be true or assuming that it all fits neatly within the CBT, whereas instead, you know, CBT is about accuracy. And so, yeah, I think that unfortunately, I don't think that's what CBT is, but I think unfortunately some people might misapply it, like say, oh, you're just um, fortune telling. That's not, you know, you're guessing why the person did that or why it turned out that way, like calling it almost as like a logical fallacy rather than what I view it as, which was like a compassionate way to point out that someone's thinking is an error. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I, well, Katie, I think that your worries about this, I think that you're catastrophizing. <laughs> uh, well, well, you know what? I think you're mind reading, so it's all good. <laughs> uh, no, that's a fair point. I, I probably hadn't given the weight it deserves. Like you can't, once you give people a label or a tool to explain other people's cognition, they're going to misapply it because they want to sort of sort of just discount their arguments. So if I can just, yeah, I, there are probably cases where it's easy to do what you're saying, like to effectively, well, gaslight people. For once, I can use that term in the actual way, not the two online way. But you know, <laughs> if you say you're being paranoid in this situation where a person has a actual threat, um, yeah, I could see that being a problem. How, how did you find your way into this particular subfield? Well, when I was an undergraduate, I started working with Thomas Joyner, who actually was my graduate mentor, too. And he was interested in uh, he studied mood disorders, eating disorders and some suicide stuff. And then I kind of entered interested in working on eating disorders, which I still am interested in. But he made a pretty compelling case through his work that suicide has been understudied, that a lot of that historically has been due to stigma or misconceptions that you can't prevent it and other types of things like that, and that we were in dire need of a better scientific understanding. And so that was really compelling to me. And then there's also a very personal element to it and working with clients in therapy or knowing friends and things like that who have who've lost someone to suicide or they've struggled with suicidal thoughts it's just so painful and the pain and grief after a suicide can really persist and so the idea that if you can do something to prevent some of that from happening is is really what got me interested in the field and and really wanted to do more in that area it's probably one of those areas of clinical psychology where there's such obvious, urgent overlap between the, the research and the treatment side, right? I think so. You know, I think that um, you mean in terms of like you see it and, and you're also doing research on it? Yeah. I mean, I know uh, most people just, 
do one or the other, right? But I just it just seems like um, I don't know. It's just it's there's there's no worse outcome than someone taking their own life. So it just seems like uh, extra urgency for the research side of it. Absolutely. I think that when we look at when you look at like what's the best that we know and you're trying to apply it and it and it doesn't seem adequate, it does feel very urgent, especially when you're trying to help patients to say, you know, we need to do better and we need to understand more. Yeah, that's very true. Right. Um, are, Are there any pop culture portrayals of suicide or depression that have always stuck out to you as particularly good or particularly bad? Yeah, so I I have a podcast that I co-host with uh, Brandon Saxton. It's called Jedi Council, and we focus a lot on pop culture portrayals of mental health because I think that influences how people perceive mental health often. And so we actually, I think the one that we both disliked the most was that Netflix series Thirteen Reasons Why. Yeah, I've heard I've heard not great. I actually haven't seen it, but I I've heard not great things. I think it's best to have not seen it, but we actually recorded three podcast episodes listing all the issues we had with it. But in short, basically, she's suicide is portrayed as kind of a vengeful act that's uh, blaming others, and it, there's a really graphic depiction, graphic depiction of her suicide, and so that I I didn't care for compared to say like a Star Is Born, which I thought was much better, where the lead character has a com- has that combination of factors that we started talking about. He had a difficult childhood. He has substance use problems. He is struggling with things like not being able to do his job anymore and losing prestige. And then he humiliated his wife and felt like a burden on her, which that's pretty accurate for a lot of people who die by suicide is they feel like they're doing the like I was saying before. They feel like they're doing someone a favor by ending their life, and so that that seems like a compassionate, accurate portrayal of someone who dies by suicide to me. Um, Logan also from Wolverine. That actually was a pretty good depiction of someone who was experiencing suicidal thoughts as well. Other than than those episodes, for people new to Jedi Council, what are your favorite episodes you'd recommend people to check out? And I'll I'll link to them in the show notes too. I actually, I really, like, we've had more guests on lately, and we had your friend Randolph Bricky on to talk about, like, being a public defender and morality in Batman, the animated series, and that was, Brandon and I both really liked that episode. We also had an episode with Sanjay Srivastava on that talked about the big five personality traits, and, and we really enjoyed that. And then a little bit of a recency effect, I guess, if you're interested in learning more about kind of overlap of suicide and eating disorders. I had a a friend of mine, April Smith, on talk about her research, and she's done some really cool stuff in that area. And so that one doesn't have a lot of pop culture elements to it, but it's kind of her talking about science in an understandable way. We're going to enter the lightning round, for which I still have no sound effects. If you're listening to this and you want to send me a sound effect of lightning, go for it. Uh, but wait, before that, was there anything else you wanted to mention or pitch or uh, anything else I should have asked you? No, I guess just the main thing is that I think it's important for us to check in with each other if you're concerned that someone, not you and me personally, I mean, generally. Yeah, why didn't check you check in with, in with me? I don't I sound pretty <laughs> down to you? 
this is going to turn into you calling me out, but um, (laughs) no, I, I think it's important that we check in with our friends and family members and understand that there are effective treatments for mental health issues that lead people to think about suicide. And there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. And so it's something that deserves our attention and each of us can do what we can to try to be a little bit more connected and, and keep hope in those moments. Yeah, I think that's an important message to to end the serious part of the podcast on. I also okay. think as as a layperson, like people's reaction to stuff tends to be, in my experience, like they're either scared to talk about it or they're worried they'll say the wrong thing. And I, I don't know. I think work like yours is important just in terms of making the conversation more salient and accessible. So I yeah, that's important. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I'm just going to ask you a bunch of random questions now and you're going to answer them and then I'll call you, I'll drag you on Twitter for your answers. <laughs> Thank you. No pressure. What's the worst academic advice you ever received? <laughs> um, probably the worst academic advice. I would say that some people have at different times. I, I tend to lean on the side of not bringing up my concerns with people who are maybe higher ranking in academia. And there are people who reinforce that, like don't bring up your concerns about issues. Um, But fortunately that was countered by other people who told me to speak up. And I think that's much better advice. So the bad advice I would say is, you know, be thoughtful when you bring things up, but just because someone is in a higher ranking position than you, that doesn't mean that your opinion isn't worth expressing. That, that overlaps so much with, I think these are very different circumstances, but a few of the stories I wrote about sort of bad social psychological research, it, it just took longer to debunk because younger researchers were hammered home um, with this idea that they shouldn't sort of question their elders. It seems like that's prevalent in a lot of areas of academia. Definitely. And I'm happy to see people push, including senior academics, for that to change and actually invite conversations and say, no, we welcome your input. I, I think it's great to see in the places that that's changed. Yeah, and there's there's also certain fields where it hasn't, but uh, that's true. <laughs> people will have to read my book for that part. Um, <laughs> what do you miss most and least about academia? Uh, the thing that I miss the least, I think, is I got a lot more emails, <laughs> and I could never keep up with them. And I think that my emails now that might change, but I I kind of like that. I don't have as many emails, and also I'm not expected to always respond. My job as a therapist now, I'm not expected to respond to things after 5 p.m. or before 8 a.m., and that's actually helped me a lot to uh, just be more efficient at work, I think, and also not always have something hanging over my head. The thing that I miss the most about it, I think that it's just really an honor to be able to talk about intellectually exciting ideas with people who are interested in that kind of stuff too. And in working in therapy, there are a lot of people who have exciting intellectual ideas that they wanna talk about, but there's less time to do that because a lot of us are, at least in my setting, we're seeing patients. And so we don't have as much time to do that. So you have to kind of just carve it out more. And I think it was more easily built in being in an academic setting. The next question was was gonna be, what's your absolute ideal day? I know the answer is like some sort of 18-hour podcast marathon for, for single-minded. But other than that, what's your second favorite absolute ideal day? This is pretty good. So um, I let's see. I really like hiking and live music and good food. So something that combines those things and would be great. I mean, I really like I like going to shows and 
I saw Laura Jane Grace recently in Minneapolis, and that was a really good day. So those types of things. And uh, yeah. she She's like, when I got to interview, I got to interview her twice. Uh, this is the lead singer of Against Me, a band uh, I would say everyone should check out, but I bet some people listening to this aren't into punk, which is fine. If you're all into punk and you haven't heard of Against Me, uh, you should listen. Um, she's just such a like kind soul, in addition to being a brilliant musician like I, I don't know there are a few interviews I've had where I like really fanboyed out and was worried that I sounded like a you know a 15 year old with like a trapper keeper and punk rock stickers but I was just yeah I was so lucky I got to talk to her she's great that's I I am a little jealous you got to interview her I, I think that's really cool I was really lucky I got so she's from Florida of course and from Gainesville and actually she and I have a mutual friend because uh, just growing up in that area um, the punk scene around Gainesville and Tallahassee were pretty connected, but I got to talk to her a little bit after the show in Minneapolis because it was a pretty small show. And I definitely was worried about seeming too much like a fangirl, but she seemed cool and to tolerate that. And you're right. She just seemed really kind. She took her time talking to people. And even though I've, she plays pretty big places now, it was cool to see that she intentionally also likes playing these smaller areas and then just talking to people, not rushing them through and all that stuff. So yeah, she's great. I loved her memoir. Yeah. Big fan. So good. Yeah. Again, uh, present company excluded. Who are your favorite Twitter accounts to follow? Oh, let's see. I like following. Oh, let me think. So Arie Cohen Wade. (laughs) Another real life friend of mine. I think I was wondering how I ended up following him, and I don't remember how it is. I do listen to his podcast, so I don't know if it was through that or if it was you retweeting him or something. But he is really funny, and I think I laugh out loud several times a day at his tweets. So He's good. He's also the only... I feel like if, if I splashed a photo of me next to a photo of him and told the internet, I know this guy in real life. We're buddies. Where did we meet? Everyone would shout in unison... Uh, Jewish youth trip to Israel. <laughs> uh, yes, he's a very good follower. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, he's so he's good. Um, I feel like I should say some other people, too. Go for it. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I like a lot of the psychology academic Twitter type people. I think that they, they do a lot of good stuff. Yeah, Sanjay uh, Srivastava, I, can, I always mispronounce his name. He He's a really good follower, too, I find. He is, yeah, because he's really funny, but then he also has a bunch of really thoughtful scientific stuff, too, which is nice. Yeah. Um, Okay, what, just two more, what annoys you the most about the present state of clinical psychology? Oh, that's a good one. Um, Oh, gosh, how do I... Name names. I will off the air. Um, no, I think I, I think one of the biggest struggles that a lot of people in clinical psychology have is 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 there is being able to effectively provide evidence based treatments to more people. There are a lot of barriers to that. Some of it has to do with you know various insurance access to getting mental health care. Some of it has to do with in certain areas not having enough therapists, and so. We don't have all the answers at all. We need much more research in clinical psychology so that we can expand the conditions that we can treat and so that we can get better at treating the conditions we already have treatments for. But when we have stuff that works, 
it's frustrating to not be able to disseminate it as broadly as we want to. And I think that's something that's given me hope is I think there's more of a push to do things like podcasts or YouTube videos where people can get some of the information, even if they're not able to get in with a therapist who provides that type of care. What do people most misunderstand about your home state of Florida? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think some of the perceptions are accurate in terms of Florida man. Of your... Do you know? Do you know Florida man? Yes, I do, and <laughs> that's kind of why I started laughing. So yeah, there. I love Florida. And it's beautiful and it's so diverse in people and in region, but I understand why people find it strange. <laughs> so, and yeah, the Florida man account isn't helping our image. I will say one of my trips down there in college, um, the extent to which there are really just alligators just around, like hanging out in canals, <laughs> just, it sort of worried and alarmed me. Yeah. Yeah, that's not, it's not great. And like, I remember when, you know, and then there are news stories occasionally on that. And so, yeah, I think that like the Everglades being right there and alligators being around, uh, yeah, it's not like just a caricature of the place with alligators. There are actually some around, though I didn't encounter a lot when I was growing up, fortunately. I do think that the big thing that I do think is surprising to people since I grew up in South Florida and then I went to school in the panhandle, is it is, people have described Florida as really seeming like it's two or three different states because it doesn't fall neatly into like a state that generally has this type of culture to it or something like that. And as you drive up and go into different areas, you see a lot of differences in variability. Yeah, well, we, we drove from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it's like the northern part is like anti-abortion billboards. Then you get to Miami, which is this awesome sort of, well, it's like a, a third Cuban, a third gay, a third Jewish culture, just this awesome mishmash. It's very different, right? Yeah, exactly. And even in, in growing up in South Florida, there are a lot of Cuban people. There are a lot of people from Haiti. There are a lot of people from New York that had moved down. There's just a lot of that. Whereas in Tallahassee, it was very much similar to the Southern, more similar to the Southern culture, I would say like Georgia and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on. And I, I think I did as both a service by, putting the unlistenable punk rock fanboying on my part in the back half of the show. So <laughs> the important stuff about suicide was in the front, but um, no, it was great to have you on and uh, I'll put information about your Twitter account and so forth in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much, Katie. Thank you, Jesse. I really enjoyed this.